welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Robert Manning, a distinguished senior fellow with the Stimson Center and formerly worked in national intelligence in the State Department and much else. Bob, thank you very much for coming on the show. No, my pleasure. We're going to be talking about really a number of different topics, but I wanted to start out by asking you about the unusual levels of instability and interstate violence in a region that is that already has high levels of that as a baseline. Um, in addition to the Israel-Gaza war and the spillover into Lebanon with Hezbollah, there's been a flurry of interstate uh, bombings and strikes in the region. The U.S. struck Yemen against Houthi nationalists that were disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, Turkey bombed Iraq and Syria. Iran bombed Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan. Pakistan returned fire against Iran. Uh, Jordan bombed Syria. Uh, this is almost too complicated to ask in a single question, but I just want to start off the conversation by asking you your take on all this. What does all this recent activity mean? Can you clarify it for us? Well, I think uh, I don't claim to understand it all. I mean, we've seen unprecedented levels of interstate conflict really since World War II. It's not just in the Middle East. You have a whole belt of countries across Africa from Upper Volta to Sudan. And um, I think it's tempting to see a kind of contagion almost. Uh, it has to do, I don't think it's an accident that we have this fragmenting international system. Uh, that's the that's the backstory to a lot of this, uh, you know, a whole range of factors from climate change, demographics, and so on are leading. On the, in the case of the Pakistan-Iran thing, I think my, my gut instinct is this was a discrete thing. The Baluchis have been a huge problem in that area. You know, the Chinese are trying to build this Gwadar port, an economic corridor, and the Ch Baluchis have been attacking them. Um and they are on both sides of the border, and they've, they've been used by Pakistan, Iran, and India various times to provoke the other. But I think, you know, Pakistan's deep in a horrible economic crisis. Iran's got bigger fish to fry uh, relative to Gaza. So I don't think this will escalate. Um, they, the, the language that both sides put out seemed to treat it as a discrete tit for tat and i think it'll be left there um but yeah you know and on top of that we're the i i can't remember in my lifetime um the u.s being vicariously involved in two open-ended wars that it doesn't seem to have a lot of um wherewithal to to bring to resolution before we move on i wonder if you have any thoughts on um, part of the the controversy domestically uh, over the U.S. strikes against uh, the Houthis was uh, the, the you know total lack of congressional authorization for a new military operation. Um, that's the norm, but uh, you know when a new strike under new justifications happens, I think it's worth looking at that again. And it's a basic rule of law thing, but how do you uh, how do you see it? Well, I think uh, you mentioned as a norm, and I think that's been the pattern. I think 
in the past there, there's there's been a certain level of consultation with with congressional leadership at least i'm not sure how much of that happened this time um, i think the us could have done a better job in to me this, this in a sense it's not unrelated to gaza but freedom of navigation is a vital core american interest and has been i mean it's for 240 years. That's why James Madison built a Navy, the Barbary Pirates and all that. And so uh, I, I think it's not something that can be tolerated. You know, we've already got the shipping problem. You got a drought in Panama, the Panama Canal is low, the Suez Canal, and, and, now, the, and now this. So um, I, I, the problem is that the Houthis are take a lot of punishment pretty well and have for a long time. And the stuff they have is mobile. And it's very hard to hit, to hit it and get, uh, get all of it or get most of it. And I think the last hit apparently got uh, 15 of the launchers before they were ready to go. So I think that might be consequential, but th- this is a, this is a difficult, a, a difficult problem. And, uh, one has to wonder if we had a ceasefire in Gaza, well, that might be as much of a solution as, as the strikes that, that we've launched. Mm-hmm. Let's shift to a different area of global instability and violence, the war in Ukraine. You wrote a piece last year about how many advocates of a kind of hegemonic U.S. approach to the world see Russian aggression against Ukraine as proof of the need for continued American primacy. You reference Robert Kagan as a prime example of this view. It's a kind of, uh, they they think it's a kind of binary choice between U.S. primacy or a Hobbesian disorder, that the world is destined to either descend into barbarity or acquiesce to U.S. salvation. Can you talk a bit about that view in the context of the Ukraine war? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine's a terrible situation, but I, I see a lot of echoes of the domino theory, uh, and you see the same logic applied, you know, linking it to Taiwan. You know, if, if X happens, the world's going to end. Uh, and so this catastrophism is really a, a part of the pathology of American primacy, American exceptionalism. I don't have a good answer. I think I, I think on on balance, uh, the Biden administration has dealt with this reasonably well in terms of risk management. Uh, you can have a debate about whether if, if we had given if we had given everything we've now given to Ukraine at the beginning, would would the would the out the situation be different now? Um, but I, and and that's a that's a legitimate question. But on the on the other side of that is the risk of, of nuclear escalation and a direct confrontation with Russia, and uh, and so they've been trying to balance that. I think I, I I'm not very optimistic. I just don't see um, I I just see a war of attrition continuing, and I think um, you know Putin has fared much better than people thought in the face of all the sanctions and everything else and has turned it into a into a kind of a, a Stalinist terror state military economy and he can keep churning out missiles and drones for a while and so this is uh, I don't I don't see how how we bring this to a conclusion the other war in Gaza I think 
the administration has uh, gone back to the, you know, if you think about the, the how the Middle East was thought about before October 7th, it was a sense of uh, integration, normalization of Israel with the, many of the Arab states and so on. And suddenly that was shattered. And But I think the impulse, uh, you have these modernizing Gulf states, the Saudis, the UAE, and so on, that want Israeli technology and investment and are more concerned about Iran. And so uh, Blinken's trips around the region have sort of put, there's a supposedly an, an Arab plan for, uh, you know, a ceasefire, rebuilding Gaza, reinventing the Palestinian Authority, and as part of a scheme to end up with a two-state solution, which is probably, uh, I think, that was Hamas's point in launching the attack, as savage and brutal as it was, was that you, uh, you, you've got five million Palestinians under Israeli occupation, and and I, and uh, how does that work? It doesn't work very, it hasn't worked very well. We had these continuing periodic uprisings. And I think my worry is that the problem is there's no appetite in Israel. Israeli politics has really changed over the last decade, 15 years, and there's just no appetite for a two-state solution. And you have to also wonder, how is it that the Palestinian organization, which is so screwed up for so 50 years is suddenly going to be transformed in, into a, a model of, good, of adequate governance. Um, I mean, I suppose it's possible, but you have to, you know, so you have that, that problem and then you have the all politics is local problem with Israel. And, and, and on top of that, I think you have the anger, rage and grief on both sides that are going to take time to, I think ultimately a two state solution is probably what's necessary, but I don't know how you get there. I think Blinken referenced that himself the other day. We have this idea of our vision, but we have how do you get there? Nobody's figured that out yet. I call it the hope narrative, and I'm not sure um, we'll be able to do it anytime soon. But the specific idea of this uh, aggression abroad kind of giving energy to kind of outmoded ideas about U.S. grand strategy? Do, do you think, do you see that happening? Is, are, are these uh, conflicts and is this instability serving as, a, as, a, as an argument, a pro-American uh, power argument? Well, I think within Washington, D.C., it is. I think that... Uh, it's really fundamentally all about China. Um, I mean, mm. that's that's the elephant in the room in all these conflicts. Uh, and we'll get to China I, for sure. I don't, yeah, and I, I, you know, and I think so. When people look at Ukraine, Russia, and this sort of emerging, what I call the Eura Eurasian Entente of China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, although it's a very transactional uh, relationship. Um, and this this tit for tat on both sides ratcheting up up tensions. Um, I I think the problem really is there's a in Washington, and I think this is very true in the Biden administration. There's kind of a it's a kind of a time warp where it's it's, mm -hmm. it's 1991 forever, 
And right. this notion, you know, Biden keeps using the phrase indispensable nation and so on. Um, and then you look at the reality on the ground and the ability of the U.S. to shape outcomes it's not there, right? Because we we have we can. There's a disconnect because we have these two fundamental uh, areas of dom- predominance, which is the, the dollar and our mili- unrivaled military. And so there's a temptation. So we go, you know, anytime anything happens, our immediate response is sanctions. Um, and on the other side, you have. Um, a, a, ten, a ten temptation to use military force uh, when things happen, and diplomacy has not been adequately d- developed in my in my view on a lot of in a lot of areas, uh, and, and so this is I I have trouble seeing how that that, that this will end well. I think the U.S. Right. Just has not adapted. To, has not been very good at adapting to change in the world to a growing multipolar this uh, redistribution of power north south east west and we continue to operate the same way and the sort of this pathology of primacy in American exceptionalism and uh, I I don't I think I don't know what it you know. I'll take the, the the shipping lanes is a good example of this problem. Mm-hmm. The oil, the oil in the Middle East, two thirds of it, seventy percent, go to Asia, right? China and India have been, and North Korea, uh, South Korea, Japan have been free riding for years on the U.S. Navy, and I think we should have encouraged them to, especially the Indian Navy is quite capable. Um, we should have collectivized that. Uh, the sea lanes, because uh, our activity is not inconsistent with our economic interests. The, our economic interests are not that not that large in the Middle East, and we keep getting sucked into these conflicts. You know, when you look at the the White House national security strategy, it's all about Asia and China being the priority, and so here we are in wars all over the world that are not in Asia. Um, and the one worrying one, of course, is Taiwan, but I think that's overblown a bit as well. Well, there's a lot of threads in there that, that I'll be uh, pulling on throughout the conversation. But you also in this piece referenced um, a key aspect of global politics right now, which is the posture of a number of what I think are sometimes called middle power states. Right. You know, uh, they receive different names and labels, Global South or BRICS countries or whatever. Yeah. Uh, many of them are democracies, you know, countries like India and Brazil and Mexico and South Africa and Indonesia and so on. And these and other kind of middle powers are not simply lining up behind the U.S. on Ukraine or on any number of these issues, from trade to confronting China to the Middle East. Um, can you talk about the significance of these, what used to be a sort of a non-aligned posture? Yeah, I think this is the trend of multipolarity I was talking about. You have uh, India, Brazil, Australia, a whole range of countries around the world that Southeast Asia uh, that essentially have chosen not to choose sides. That they they see they're not. It's not like the old non-aligned movement because there's. It's not clear what you're non-aligned against, but it's it's more multi-aligned. That they're they're pursuing their interests, trying to figure out how they can maximize their leverage 
with uh, playing off both China and the U.S. Uh, and I think the American assumption is, you know, Biden's democracy organizing principle for the world order does, doesn't quite work, right? Um, will, will all the Asian countries line up behind us if there's a conflict in Taiwan? Probably not. Uh, I don't think there's a, a good, uh, you know, my sense of the countries like like Indonesia or Vietnam or even the Philippines that we have, even allies, are torn because, you know, the U.S., from an Asian perspective, for example, the U.S. may come or may go, but China is forever, right? And the economic trends are deeper integration with China is growing in absolute terms because the Asian economies are growing faster, it's shrinking in relative terms. And so none of them yeah. are prepared. E- even the so-called friend sharing or near nearshoring or all this stuff, when you look at it, what you see is in India or Vietnam, they're essentially assembling Chinese parts. So we've 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 complicated the supply chains to, to and most companies have a China plus one uh, manufacturing strategy. So but we haven't, it, it isn't a dichotomy that the White House seems to have in mind. There's actually an active debate among scholars about how global power is distributed right now. You know, some uh, like Steve Brook, Bill Woolforth, for example, uh, they kind of, I don't know if they use, if they call it unipolarity per se, but they make a strong argument that the U.S.'s lead on any potential competitor is huge. And, uh, you know, other scholars make the argument that no, what we're seeing is really the emergence of a bipolar system with the rise of China. And still others just think it's a gradual shift to multipolarity going on. In your piece, for example, you write, quote, in terms of economics, technology, and nuclear weapons, today's world is multipolar. So knowing that there's no consensus on this, I just wonder if you can kind of make that case here. Why are you sure that the proper way to understand the distribution of global power right now is multipolar? Right. Well, I guess the problem I have is the reality doesn't neatly fit into any of these categories. See, that that's the problem. If you define power as the ability to achieve desired outcomes, mm-hmm. our dominance of the dollar and our military have don't work in the in the real world i mean just look at all the conflicts we've just been talking about um you know and, and then the endless wars in in afghanistan iraq and so on and so it doesn't it, it it's it's a it's a debate that i think is somewhat divorced from reality i mean you can make an argument either way right because the dollar is continuing to be dominant, and because our military's capabilities are still unrivaled, um, you could make an argument that for unipolarity or bipolarity. Um, but in the real world of actual problem solving, you need to have. Uh, I, I guess what I've ag- ar- argued for the last ten or fifteen years is the notion of shifting the U.S. to a kind of primus inter Paris role in the world. In other words, you, you want you, you want our allies like Europe uh, to do a lot more than they're doing in terms of burden sharing. And so you have a more, the U.S. is sort of the first among equals chairman of the board of a more uh, uh, multilateral approach. 
and we're not that's not happening we're we're clinging to the old ways of doing business and it, it hasn't been working very well that's i guess one reason you have the populist reactions all over the world because the elites have failed both economically and in terms of global security I want to ask you now about U.S. policy towards China and specifically Taiwan. There were elections in Taiwan this month, and they elected a strong advocate for Taiwanese independence. And this comes amid mixed signals from the United States. You know, the Biden administration has reaffirmed the one China policy in in many Mm -hmm. statements. But there's been growing support, as you mentioned, in the piece for Taiwanese independence in Congress. And it's been high, a, a succession really of high level official visits to Taiwan, which are calculated to provoke Beijing, I think. Can you talk a bit about uh, what you think the election means uh, for Taiwan and then also about the shifting position of the one China policy in Washington? Yeah, I think a lot of the media mis- misrepresented the election. You know, 60% of Taiwanese voted against the DPP, number one. And the, the success of the uh, TPP, the third party, has changed the political landscape. The, the, the KMT has the majority of votes uh, by one seat over DPP in the legislature. So we're going to have it. We have a divided government, and the, the smaller TPP with only eight seats is going to be the kind of power broker. So it's a new political landscape. I think that's the most interesting thing to me about the election results, and nobody's been talking about that very much. So hmm. that's point. That's point one. Uh, Mr. Lai, unlike his predecessor, President Tsai is a very cautious former trade negotiation, very prudent, very. Uh, and Lai has made a number of statements from time to time about Taiwan independence. Um, that and so China has already prejudged him. Uh, I, the interesting question is given the. The, the results that I've just described and uh, the role, the divided government, it wasn't a total, you know, China for, since democracy transitioned in 1988, they China's always overplayed its hand and tried to m- manipulate things to get their desired candidate. And it's always backfired. And it did again this mm-hmm. time. And so I think the Chinese are, are, are still trying to figure out, I, I think, I think the debate here about whether they're going to invade in 2025 or 27 um, is really wrongheaded in the sense that, number one, you have to think about what it takes to do an amphibious assault. It's like D-Day to get 150, 200,000 Chinese troops across the water, sustain logistics and so on. They don't have the capacity, number one. Number two, they have a rich menu of non-kinetic coercion, and some a lot of which they've been applying. You know, they whether it's economic coercion, cutting off trade, cutting off trade or raising tariffs, or, or you know, digital uh, digital coercion uh, with misinformation and so on. They've they've been doing that and. I you know, con- consistently, and it's been ratcheting up over the last several years, particularly as the U.S., uh, the, the interaction between U.S. and Taiwan has changed. We have all these congressmen running around. And I mean, the debate in Washington is 
really the politics are who hates China, who can show they hate China more, and who can show they love China, China, Taiwan most. And so it's not it's not a rational calculation of U.S. interests that's going on, and it, and it's also a typical phenomenon. Is now everybody's a China expert, and ninety percent of the people don't really know what they're talking about. Um, and Xi Jinping hasn't helped. China has been horribly uh, over over aggressive, overplaying their hand. And I mean, in a way, they've done us a favor because the backlash all across the world, both whether you look at the the debt they've created in developing countries with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, their economic coercion in the South China Sea, you have unprecedented growing intra-Asian uh, Security cooperation between India, Japan, Philippines, India, you know, a whole range of lattice work of security operations uh, and and growing and and more strengthened U.S. alliances. So it's really uh, it's just one own goal after the other from from the Chinese. And, and, and that's I think that they're what you see with the San Francisco summit was she, I think kind of backpedaling a little bit, uh, given his, his economic situation at home, and he wants to quiet things down for a while. And I think they also want to wait and see what happens in 2024 in U.S. elections. Um, so I, I, I think the Chinese will, will do a lot of obnoxious things on, on Taiwan. I don't see ten, you know, tensions... Um, spilling over in the conflict or anything anytime soon. Uh, and I, I'd like to think, you know, we've, we've started re-engaging China on a number of levels. I don't know how much of it is, is bureaucratic process and how, but I think, you know, it has to produce results if we're going to have a stable relationship. I've focused for a long time on the importance of the fentanyl issue because of its political, uh, and significance here. And if the Chinese, you know, we did have counter-narcotics cooperation in the past with China. It blew up. I haven't followed since the San Francisco meeting how, how, well, how well the Chinese are actually, if they're following it up. But I think that could, there's a number of areas that could be important. You know, there's, there's been dialogues with the, with the private ma- major tech companies here in China on AI. Uh, I think that, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing for me because if we don't have global sto- standards, global norms and regulations, it's going to be a race to the bottom. Um, particularly uh, in the military side, you know, the need to have humans in control of nuclear weapons for example, there needs to be some common understanding among the Perm Five on that, and I, hopefully we'll we'll get there. That's one thing that has been discussed with China. I want to ask you to talk more about the politics on Taiwan because it seems to me, and you you, you mentioned this in your piece, that there's a tendency to talk about the prospect of war over Taiwan rather casually. Um, it's, there seems to be a, a notable lack of appreciation for just what a horror show this would be. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about it there, but you know, it would, you can't really talk sensibly about winners and losers in such a, an event. It's, it's losers all around and a global economic catastrophe to boot. Um, 
you talked about uh, Washington Uber hawks. They appear eager to take on mainland China as if forgetting it is a mature nuclear state and that Taiwan is viewed as an existential issue for Beijing. Can you just talk a bit more about the uh, Uber hawk eagerness, even in the face of a war no one can win? Yeah, I think think Americans are not known for their memory span. And, um, you know, I think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and there's a lot of uh, several books that have come out over the last several years, getting all the internal uh, documents from Ukraine and Russia. And what you see is both Kennedy and Khrushchev were desperately trying to figure out how to avoid nuclear war. And the mm-hmm. contrast between the de- between that and and the debate here is really striking to me because it seems like. We, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to downplay the problem of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, but they are, you know, the, a nuclear war would be devastating. I recently wrote a, a red cell look, looking, and Bloomberg just did a study on this, saying that there would be $10 trillion worth of damage if you had a year-long conflict over Taiwan. People are un, sort of underestimating that. Um, and, and there's a lack of sobriety, to, to my mind, in the in a lot of the, the debate here. There's just uh, so much anxiety about China's rise. You know, for the last 10 years or so, I've been asking the question, what does the U.S. consider China's legitimate interests? And you never get an answer. Because I think we're just so uncomfortable with, with the rise of China that our, our, our the primacy we've enjoyed since World War II is, has eroded significantly, and, and we haven't been able to come to terms with that. And I, as I say, it's complicated because of, of the Chinese behavior in the world. But still, even if China was a democracy, they'd be a rising power, and their interests in ours would not be co- consistent on a, a lot of things. So speaking of uh, having a hard line, we're shifting from just China and talking about the, you know, a lot of times DC describes its approach to the world uh, with reference to China and Russia as major competitors that justify, you know, an ambitious US uh, strategy. Um, But the hard line is, needs... (laughs) needs to be talked about. As you write, one lesson of the Cold War is that survival is a mutual interest, yet many see Chinese and Russian ambitions as unrelenting and inflexible, and as such, there can be no accommodation for them. No modern Westphalian or concert of Vienna type order, you write. No balance of power arrangements. Um, Can you talk about the need for flexibility uh, in our approach and, and not an absolutist kind of uh, uncompromising approach? Yeah, I, I, I think I don't see how you have a stable world order without some balance. I mean, there's some there's some people even with the hard line types on China that that understand, you know, the question is what what is our what what is our theory of victory? What what is the goal? And is it to get rid of the Chinese Communist Party? We've been trying to change China for 200, 150 years since the missionaries in the 19th century and haven't done very well. Um, or is it to find a stable balance of power that 
is consonant with American interests. That that's that's to me what the goal should be. I think mm-hmm. in their heart of hearts, the Biden administration is looking to try to create, try to do that, to try to create some framework to manage a competitive coexistence. Um, the problem is you have a lot of uh, irrational exuberance against China, all, and it's very hard. And, you know, there's whether it's a balloon or something else, there's always some little crisis that pops up and every and blows up out of proportion and makes it harder and harder to do that. And the Chinese, you know, obviously haven't helped themselves by overreacting to everything we do. Uh, so, 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 but I, I think ultimately, I don't see how you have a stable world order uh, without uh, some balance of power that that is, uh, you know, that rep- that where both all sides feel they can live with. Mm-hmm. So, on l- pulling on that thread a little further. Um, you also write that the United States is actually well positioned to adapt its leadership to this burgeoning multipolar reality if it understands the limits of its power and employs strategic empathy to grasp others' interests and creates allied coalitions with whom to share the burden of countering Beijing and Moscow. So explain what you think is required for the U.S. to adopt such a flexible and prudent approach, because it strikes me as both perfectly sensible and kind of pie in the sky. You know, we just don't have the Mm. best track record on understanding the limits of our power and employing strategic empathy. Well, you know, it has been done in the past. In the first Bush administration, I worked for Jim Baker, uh, and... And, you know, that was his, that's the way he conducted diplomacy. You had to understand what are the other guy's interests, what are their red lines, uh, and, you know, how, how can everybody get something, nobody gets everything. And, and, and that, that was a result of, that resulted in a lot of very successful diplomacy in, in terms of the ending of the Cold War, uh, progress in the Middle East, and so on. And, and I, I think we've lost that. Uh, methodology to our diplomacy to some extent, and it be, it's, it's all this Manichaean universe of good and evil, and uh, you know nobody else has interests. Uh, you know we couldn't possibly be threatening anybody, so how can they possibly see us as a threat? You know, and and I saw you, you get you know mm-hmm. I I was critical of of NATO expansion, although that's gotten more complicated. But you have to wonder. If we hadn't done the uh, the 2008 Budapest thing, create, creating Ukrainian hope of joining NATO and Russia, you know, that was about the time when the Russians, Putin started going into this crazy uh, Russian czarist approach to the world. Um, you know, so, so if you think back, what what are, what are the opportunity costs that we've missed that for things we've missed? like that. Um, and I think it's also, it's just a much more co- complex dynamic in the world. As I said, you know, you have all these rising middle powers that are pursuing their interests and, and we can see, you know, so when Biden talks about democracy autocracy, it doesn't work because these countries don't see the world that way. Indonesia and India are not interested in naming and shaming. They're interested in pursuing their interests, uh, uh, you know, and so um, 
we 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 seem to be slow learners in terms of adapting to to the this 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 world we're we're entering, uh, and so I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know at this point, I, I, I always used to ask myself, well, what would it take? What would be the, the tipping point where we'd, we'd get it? And I, I, right now I can't I tell you, I see it. A uh, final question about, you talked about the trend of, uh, basically economic nationalism and it's kind of global in proportion. Um, can you talk about how you see that going forward? If it's a trend that's going to continue and kind of compound on itself, and what are the implications for global order with that happening? Well, in a lot of ways, you know, I look at what's going on as uh, my reference point is the, the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, um, and we saw what happened when the global system broke down after World War One, and we had the you know Smith Scoot Hurley Smith Hurley. And so on, and and I think we're we're drifting in that direction. Although you know, when you look at the actual numbers, it's not as it's not it's like Wagner's. They say about Wagner's music, it's it's not as bad as it sounds. When you look at the IMF WTO statistics, trade is is, has not fallen apart. Uh, it, it's pretty much it, it's growing slower, but it hasn't it hasn't declined, and it, and the U.S. is really the only country that's walked away from trade agreements. I, I think the problem is, you know, the the we haven't gotten over the China shock in around when they entered the, the WTO around two thousand, and they it did lose two thousand two million or so jobs, and it did hollow out a lot of uh, Rust Belt. And, but the, you know the problem with trade is there's always winners and losers. Other countries have a, a better social safety net and a better, um, and this is particularly important now because we're in a time of enormous technological change. S- skills training programs linking education and skills training uh, to private sector opportunities. We haven't done that. You know, in 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 Europe, for example, there isn't there wasn't the backlash against trade that we've seen here, partly because they have a much stronger social safety net. You know, in places like Germany, the the government pays companies and they pay and and, and they pay workers seventy five percent of their salary, so they're not laid off and forgotten. Um, so we, you know, I wonder if if we put more focus on on thick on that, whether we had universal daycare, skills training, better healthcare, and social, you know, and so on, whether there would be more support for international trade. Um, you know, I, I, the administration just seems to have a trade phobia. I mean, most recently at the at the APEC meeting, they walked away from the one tiny piece of their Asia strategy, the IPEF, uh, that had actually the possibility of expanding market access, the digital agreement. And I'm still trying to understand why they did that, because we have a high standard uh, digital agreement in the USMCA trade agreement. We have a high standard with the US-South Korea trade agreement, and we have a bilateral digital agreement with Japan. So I keep asking, what was the, what would be the downside in, in regionalizing that? And nobody's given me the answer. It's just, you know, because, and, and there's a lot of it is anti, kind of anti-big tech, anti-corporate. Well, big companies are benefiting. 
well, but also the guy in the garage and small businesses and startups have, if they have access to global markets and digital commerce is the fastest growing area of trade, wouldn't that benefit the middle class? They keep saying we're trying to benefit the middle class. But I, I don't see how protectionism, which raises prices um, and loses market opportunity for expanding markets, how that benefits the middle class. So, you know, and I think even this uh, industrial policy is going to be very difficult to, to, to implement. You've already seen tensions with Europe worrying about uh, hollowing out their industry because of U.S. Uh, chip and and. EV subsidies and so on, uh, and how it impacts developing countries, you know, sucking capital investment in one direction and so on. So if you game game out all the consequences, I, I don't I I I don't know uh, what again I don't know what it will take to have a more balanced approach. Um, you know, you can have trade agreements that deal with the environment and and. Uh, and labor. I was involved in the TPP in the in the Bush administration, which Obama then carried forward, and and that was considered the pillar of our Asia strategy, because it would we have such enormous volume of trade under that agreement that it would force China to either reform or, or lose out, and so we would that was the argument, and we walked away from that, and. Thankfully, Japan uh, demonstrated real leadership and picked it up and had a version of it going forward. But I, I still think it was a, there's a lot of shock and surprise in Asia about U.S. reliability from walking away from that. Now we've done it again with on a smaller scale with uh, IPAF, and and so um, I think this is a mistake. I think we need to re. I I I think you you, you need to adjust to the d- damages of trade. And no one's denying the excesses of hyperglobalization. The question is how you deal with it, because we're not going to stop trading with other. There's there's still a global trade system, and unfortunately, you know, the U.S. is walking away from it. We blocked the WTO uh, from uh, its dispute mechanism by not appointing judges. Biden is sort of following the same pattern as as Trump on that. Um, I, I think it's a mistake. I think I think there's a real opportunity for American leadership uh, on this and that we're squandering it. Robert Manning, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.